0: Attention listeners, this podcast contains graphic content, explicit language, frightening stories, and other adult content not suitable for listeners under the age of 18. This podcast may also contain triggers for suicide, depression, and other types of mental illness. Listener discretion is advised. Only in the irrational and unknown direction can we come to wisdom again. Quote by Jack Parsons.
1: You've done it now. Your curiosity has betrayed you. You've made it to the end of the woods. But there is one problem. The monster who resides here with his bevy of fiendish friends will entangle you with his tales of haunting horrors. I pity you, friend, for you were brave enough to dive into the depths of the Monster's Aww. Lair.
2: Don't start backpedaling now. You've gone too far. You're stuck in the Monster's Lair with the trailer park monster himself. J.D. Hutchins.
1: Enjoy.
0: Enjoy. All right, listeners. This is your host, the Treasure Park Monster himself, J.D. Hutchins, and at this time, I'd like to finally welcome back my co-host, Tom the Nightmare. Hey guys, how's it going, Tommy? Going good. Appreciate all the prayers and well wishes I
3: got. Um, quick update: my dad's home. He's doing good. Um, he's doing amazing. He still said he'll kick my ass even with one
0: leg, so
3: I can't complain.
0: There you go. Uh, so this week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about an individual by the name of Jack Parsons. Is that someone you've heard of before? Do you know anything about him? Heard of
3: him, but if it's anything like the Alan Parsons Project, probably not.
0: It's not anything like the Alan Parsons Project. Uh, Jack Parsons is a basically a rocketeer that worked for NASA at one point and basically led his side activities... Um, Come to light because of that the folks in NASA didn't take too kindly and they basically wrote him out of history And it wasn't until a a few years later When the US government realized they couldn't completely ignore his contributions because of what he was into on a personal level That they finally disclosed you know his impact on rocket rocketeering and uh, rocket science So he's a truly fascinating individual he basically lived a completely Duplicitous life. Yeah. You know, he was one thing in the lab, he was another completely different thing in life. Okay. Um kind of like Guar. Pretty much, yeah. It's <laughs> like uh David Brocky versus uh the character of odorus Arungus. That would actually be a pretty good match, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. So uh yeah, I'm excited to get into it with you. I'm glad to have you back. I'm happy to be back, man. And uh welcome back into the Monsters Lair. I'm happy to be here, man. Here in the Monster's Lair, we delight in telling terrifying horror stories that hopefully scare, disturb, disgust, intrigue, and hopefully most of all, entertain all of our listeners. We also enjoy dealing with dabbling in the wonderfully weird. High strangeness can translate to high entertainment in certain cases as well. After all, it is true what many people say and what Mark Twain who was eccentric in his own right, who believed his life cycle was tied in with Halley's Comet, and publicly stated, The Almighty has said no doubt. Now here are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together. They must go out together. That, reality, is stranger than fiction. This week, in the Monster's Lair, we will be featuring a real person who was strange for his time, But was not the only one. I'm sure some of our listeners are believers in the supernatural and have religious beliefs outside of the normal standard Christian or Catholic spectrum. I'm sure we also have a fair amount of folks who look at the world through the lenses of science and debunk things and think systematically and analytically at everything they experience in life. Well the subject of our episode this week was both of these. In the world, he was a fascinated participant in the occult, magic, and the unknown. In the lab, he was a stringent technician with a masterful skill in mathematics, science, analytics, and statistics. In this week's episode, we will be featuring a handsome, debonair, dapper gentleman genius scientific phenom inventor and master NASA rocketeer. He was also an eccentric, Rich, Marxist turned libertarian, effeminate bisexual turned macho playboy, Thelemite, often mistaken as Satanist, believer in chaos magic, quantum mysticism, UFOs, aliens from another planet, and an associate and disciple of Aleister Crowley, and a friend of founding member and man made god of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. This week, we are discussing the man, the myth, the legend that is Jack Parsons. The man who proves that belief is in something beyond the normal spectrum of human understanding does not denote a lack of intelligence or gullibility. A man whose life and actions prove you can be a genius in the world of academics and seek a life in the occult and the darkness of the unknown. Without further ado, let's dive into the fascinatingly strange Rigidly scientific and delightfully dark depths of the life that was Jack Parsons.
3: Alright listeners, this is your co-host, Tom the Nightmare. We're going to go over some Jack Parsons facts. Jack Parsons was born Marvel Whiteside Parsons in Los Angeles, California on October 2, 1914. Parsons was raised by a wealthy family on Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena, California. His parents, Ruth Virginia Whiteside and Marvel H. Parsons had moved to California from Massachusetts the previous year. Purchased in a house on Scarf Street in downtown Los Angeles, their son, his father's namesake, but was known in the household as Jack. The marriage broke down soon after Jack's birth, when Ruth discovered that his father had made numerous visits to a prostitute, and she filed for divorce in March 1915. Jack's father returned to Massachusetts after being publicly exposed as an adulterer, with Ruth forbidding him from having any contact with Jack. His father later joined the armed forces, reaching the rank of Major, and married a woman with whom he had a son, Charles. A half-brother, Jack, only met once. Although she retained her ex-husband's surname, Ruth started calling her son John, but many friends throughout his life knew him as Jack. Ruth's parents, Walter and Carrie Whiteside, moved to California to be with Jack and their daughter, using their wealth to buy an upscale house in Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena, known locally as Millionaire's Mile, where they would live live together. Jack was surrounded by domestic servants. Having few friends, he lived a solitary childhood and spent much time reading. He took a particular interest in works of mythology, Arthurian legend, and the Arabian Nights. Through the works of Jules Verne, he became interested in science fiction and a keen reader of pulp magazines like Amazing Stories, which led to his early interest in rocketry. Inspired by science fiction literature, he developed an interest in rocketry in his childhood and in 1928 began amateur rocket experiments with school friend Edward S. Foreman. He dropped out of Pasadena Junior College and Stanford University due to financial difficulties during the Great Depression, and in 1934 he united with Foreman and graduate student Frank Molina to form the Caltech-affiliated Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory or GALCIT. Rocket Research Group. Supported by Galsett Chairman Theodore von Karman in 1939, the Galsett Group gained funding from the National Academy of Sciences, or NAS, to work on jet assisted takeoff, JATO, for the U.S. military. After the U.S. entered World War II, they founded Aerojet in 1942 to develop and sell JATO technology. The Galsett Group became JPL, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. In 1943, after a brief involvement with Marxism, in 1939, Parsons converted to Thelemia, the English occultist Alistair Crowley's new religion movement. In 1941, with his first wife, Helen Northrup, Parsons joined the Agape Lodge, the Californian branch of the Thelemite Ordo Templi Orientis Oto, at Crowley's Bidding. He replaced Wilfred Talbot Smith as its leader in 1942 and ran the lodge from his mansion on Orange Grove Avenue. At the same time, in 1941, Parsons started to have a sexual relationship with his wife Helen's 17-year-old sister, Sarah something that was encouraged by his church and Helen. Helen started a relationship with one of the church's most senior members, Talbot Smith. The four of them, along with other Thelemites, ended up moving into a large house together in Pasadena. Drugs flowed freely, as did sexual partners. The lodge attracted negative attention, with the police and FBI receiving allegations that it played host to occult involvement in sexual orgies and black magic. Although upon investigation, it was deemed not to represent a threat to national security. The U.S. government heard that Nazi Germany was developing the V2 rocket, so gave the Galsett rocket research group, now without Parsons, a grant to develop rocket-based weapons and the group has renamed to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. At around that time, Parsons was expelled from Aerojet by new majority shareholders who disapproved of his Again, unorthodox and unsafe working methods. Parsons and Ed Foreman moved on to and found the Ad Astra Engineering Company. In 1945, science fiction writer and later founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, moved into the Pasadena Lodge. Sarah took an interest in Hubbard, which made Parsons jealous. He developed a deeper interest in witchcraft and the darker side of magic becoming fascinated by poltergeists and ghostly apparitions. In a bid to conjure up a new lover, he took part in extraordinary rituals where he would masturbate onto magical tablets to the sound of music. After his girlfriend ran off with Hubbard, he decided to create his own girlfriend and summon an elemental. Parsons was expelled from JPL and Aerojet in 1944 due to the Lodge's infamous reputation and his hazardous workplace conduct. In nineteen forty five, Parsons separated from Helen after having an affair with her sister Sarah, when Sarah left him for Elron Hubbard. He conducted the Babylon Working, a series of ritual, rituals designed to invoke the Thelemic Gods of Babylon to earth. He and Hubbard continued to continued the procedure with Marjorie Cameron or yeah, Marjorie Cameron, who Parsons married in nineteen forty six. After Hubbard and Sarah defrauded him of his life savings, Parson resigned from the OTO and held various jobs while acting as a consultant for Israel's rocket program. Amid the climate of McCarthyism, which was a U.S. government witch hunt for alleged communists, carried out under Senator Joseph McCarthy in the period of 1950 to 1954, instituted loyalty checks under President Harry S. Truman establishing a sweep loyalty investigation of federal employees. Jack was accused of espionage and left unable to work in rocketry. He was also for a time blackballed by NASA and other government organizations which he had associated with. Parsons was considered effeminate as a child. In adult life he exhibited an attitude of uh, machismo? machismo. I can't really pronounce that guys, I'm sorry. His FBI file described him as potentially bisexual, and he once expressed experiencing a latent homosexuality. The actor Paul Mattinson said he had had a gay relationship with Parsons in the 1950s, though this was disputed by others who knew him. Paul Mattinson appeared in the 50s 50s film inauguration of The Pleasure Dome, Night Tide, and other Kenneth Anger films. Parsons had the reputation of being a womanizer and was notorious for frequently flirting and having sexual liaisons With female staff members at the JPL and Aerojet campus He was also known for being personally eccentric such as greeting house guests with a large pet snake around his neck driving to work in a rundown Pontiac and using a mannequin dressed in a tuxedo with a bucket labeled the resident as his mailbox as well as a fencing and archery enthusiast, Parsons was also a keen shooter. He often hunted jackrabbits and cottontails in the desert, and was amused by mock dueling with the with foreman while on test sites, with rifles and shotguns. Upon proposing to his first wife, Helen, he gave her a pistol. Parsons enjoyed playing pranks on his colleagues, often through detonate, detonating explosives such as firecrackers and smoke bombs, and was known to spend hours at a time in a bathtub playing with toy boats. As well as intense bursts of creativity, Parsons suffered from what he described as manic hysteria and depressing melancholy. His father, Marvel, after suffering a near-fatal heart attack, died in 1947 as a psychiatric patient at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. Diagnosed with severe clinical depression, a condition that is suggested the younger Parsons inherited. Parsons' occult and libertarian writings were published posthumously, with Western esoteric and cou- yeah, countercultural circles citing him as one of the most significant figures in propagating Thelma across North America. Although academic interest in his scientific career was negligible, historians came to recognize Parsons' contributions to the rocket engineering. For these innovations, his advocacy of space exploration and human spaceflight, and his role in founding JPL and Aerojet, Parsons is regarded as among the most important figures in the history of the U.S. space program. He has been subject of several biographies and fictionalized
0: portrayals. Alright, Tommy, now confession time. Let's go. I take baths every night on a regular basis i believe it and i do play with bath toys uh-huh. and i find nothing absolutely at all wrong with it so i have jack parsons back on that i don't know about you
3: i mean you can have his back on that i mean if we're, go- if we're gonna be honest i go full buffalo bill at least once a week there you go i stand in front of my mirror and tuck my shit in and you know would you fuck me i'd fuck me you
0: do, do you play goodbye horses though is the question
3: depends on the afternoon sometimes it's good, goodbye horses other times it's maybe something a little more effeminate but usually goodbye horses
0: all right everything absolutely perfectly normal yeah we're normal people that's right my name is taylor and you're listening to the monster's lair guys, I just wanted to take a quick minute to say thank you to our listeners in Ireland and Australia. Next to the U.S., we have a 2% listenership in both of those countries. It's amazing that an amateur DIY podcaster can reach an international audience that fast in today's modern times. But that's the beauty of podcasting. I mean, you can say whatever you want and get it out to the world. Thanks, guys, for listening. I greatly appreciate all of you, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thelema was founded in 1904 by Aleister Crowley. This is the year Crowley claimed to have received the Book of the Law by an entity known as Awas, a voice often heard by Crowley, who he stated was an ancient Egyptian entity, spelled A-I-W-A-S-S, which was to serve as the foundation of the religious and philosophical system of Thelema. Crowley believed Awas was a minister of Hurpar Krat. in Greek translates to Harpocrates, meaning Horus, the child. Horus was often the ancient Egyptian's national protector, guardian, and patron deity. He was usually depicted as a falcon-headed man wearing the sphinct, or a red and white crown as a symbol of kingship over the entire kingdom of Egypt. Hor Par was believed by Crowley to be the central deity of Thelema. The Book of the Law would serve as Thelema's central religious text. To know more about Thelema and Jack Parsons, we must first learn more about Alistair Crowley. Edward Alexander Crowley was born on October 12, 1875, in Royal Leamington Spa in Warwickshire, England. Royal, Royal Leamington Spa, often referred to as just Leamington, is a spa town in Warwickshire, England. Originally a small village called Leamington Priors It grew into a spa town in the 18th century, following the popularization of its water which was claimed to have medicinal qualities. In the 19th century, the town experienced one of the most rapid expansions in England. It is named after the River Leam, which flows through the town. This is an interesting fact that Crowley, a man who believed in magic, was born in a town on land stated to have magical healing qualities. His parents, Edward Crowley and Emily Bertha Bishop, were evangelical Christians. Emily came from a Devonshire Somerset family and had a strained relationship with her son and often described him as The Beast, a name that he reveled in. Crowley's father and namesake was a wealthy brewer who owned a share of the family business, Crowley's Alton Ales. He made enough money off the brewery to comfortably retire by the time Alistair Crowley was born. At the age of eight, Crowley was sent to H.T. Habershon's Evangelical Christian Boarding School in Hastings and then to Eber Preparatory School in Cambridge, run by Reverend Henry D.R.C. Champney, whom Crowley considered a sadist. In March 1887, when Crowley was 11, his father died of tongue cancer. Crowley described this as a turning point in his life, and he has always maintained an admiration of his father, describing him as my hero and my friend. Inheriting a third of his father's wealth, he began misbehaving at school and was harshly punished by Reverend Champney. Crowley's family removed him from the school when he developed albuminaria, which is a condition that is pathological and where the protein albumin is abnormally present in the urine. Albumin is a major plasma protein normally circulating in the blood. In healthy people, only trace amounts of it are present in urine, whereas larger amounts occur in the urine of patients with kidney disease. He then attended Malvern College and Tonbridge School, both of which he despised, and left after a few terms. He started becoming increasingly skeptical regarding Christianity while attending these schools, pointing out inconsistencies in the Bible to his religious teachers, and went against the Christian morality of his upbringing by smoking, masturbating, and having sex with prostitutes, from whom he contracted gonorrhea. He was sent to live with Brethren, a tutor in Eastbourne. He began taking chemistry courses at Eastbourne College. Crowley developed interest in chess, poetry, mountain climbing, and in 1894 climbed Beachy Head before visiting the Alps and joining the Scottish Mountaineering Club. The following year, he returned to the Bernese Alps climbing the Ager, Trift, Jungfrau, a monk and Wetterhorn. He went on to attend Cambridge University from 1895 through 1898, and this is where he adopted the name Alistair and also came to have his claimed to have his first spiritual experience. Here he would decide to abandon all thoughts of a diplomatic career and start pursuing interest in the occult. In March 1898, A.E. Waite's the Book of Black Magic and Pax and then Carl van Eckerthausen's The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary, furthering his occult interests. In August 1898, Crowley was in Zermatt, Switzerland, where he met chemist Julian L. Baker, and the two began discussing their common interest in alchemy. In London, Baker introduced Crowley to George Cecil Jones, Baker's brother-in-law, and a member of the occult society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Crowley was initiated into the Outer Order of the Golden Dawn on 18th November 1898 by the group's leader, Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers. The Golden's Dawn purpose was to study and practice of the occult, metaphysics, and paranormal activities during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Crowley's lifestyle, bisexuality, and libertine approach to life made him an unpopular person in the group. When the Golden Dawn's London Lodge refused to initiate Crowley into a second order, he visited the group's leader Samuel Mathers in Paris, who personally admitted him into the Adeptus Minor Grade. A schism had now developed between Mathers and the London members of the Golden Dawn, who were unhappy with his autocratic rule. Acting under Mathers' orders, Crowley, with the help of his mistress and fellow initiate Elaine Simpson, attempted to seize the Vault of the Adepts, a temple space at 36 Blythe Road in West Kingsington from the London Lodge members. When the case was taken to legal court, the judge ruled in favor of the London Lodge as they had paid for the space's rent, leaving both Crowley and Mathers isolated and desolate from the group. From the period of 1900 to 1903, Crowley would travel the world, venturing to Mexico, India, France, and would, along with the Eckenstein crowley Expedition, attempt to climb K2 which had never been climbed to that point. On the journey, Crowley was afflicted with influenza, malaria, snow blindness, and other expedition members were also struck with illness. They reached an altitude of 20,000 feet or 6,100 meters before turning back. In August 1903, Crowley wed his friend and painter Jared Kelly's sister Rose Edith Kelly in a marriage of convenience to prevent her from entering an arranged marriage. The marriage appalled the Kelly family and damaged his friendship with Gerald. Heading on a honeymoon to Paris, Cairo, and then Ceylon, Crowley fell in love with Rose and worked to prove his affections. While on his honeymoon, he wrote her a series of love poems published by Rosa Mundi and other love songs, as well as authoring the religious satire, Why Jesus Wept. Alistair would go on to form the foundation of what would be Thelema in 1904. In February 1904, Crowley and Rose arrived in Cairo. Claiming to be a prince and princess, they rented an apartment in which Crowley set up a temple room and began invoking ancient Egyptian deities while studying Islamic mysticism and Arabic. According to Crowley's later account, Rose regularly became delirious and informed him, they are waiting for you. On March 18th, she explained that they were the god Horus, and on March 20th proclaimed that the equinox of the gods has come. She led him to a nearby museum where she showed him a 7th century BCE mortuary stele known as the Stele of Ankh F in Kansu. Crowley thought it important that the exhibit's number was 666, the number of the beast in Christian belief, and later, in later years, termed the artifact the Stele of Revealing. According to Crowley's later statements, on 8th of April he heard a disembodied voice that claimed to be that of Iwas, the messenger of Horus. Crowley said that he wrote down everything the voice had told him over the course of the next three days and titled it Liber al Vel Legis, or the Book of the Law. The book proclaimed that humanity was entering a new aeon and that Crowley would serve as its prophet. It stated that a supreme moral law was to be introduced in this aeon, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, and that people should learn to live in tune with their will. This book and the philosophy that it espoused became the cornerstone of Crowley's religion, Thelema. In 1912, Crowley published The Book of Lies, a work of mysticism that biographer Lawrence Sutton described as his greatest success in merging his talents as a poet, scholar, and magus. The German occultist Theodore Roos later accused him of publishing some of the secrets of his own occult order, the Ordo Templi Orientis, or the O.T.O., within the book. Crowley convinced Roos that the similarities were merely coincidental, and the two became friends. Roos appointed Crowley as head of the OTO's British branch, the Mysteria Mystica Maxima, or Triple M. At a ceremony in Berlin, Crowley adopted the magical name of Baphomet and was proclaimed 10th degree Supreme Rex and Sovereign Grand Master, General of Ireland, Iona, and all the Britons. With Ruse's permission, Crowley set about advertising the Triple M and rewriting many OTO rituals, which were then based largely on Freemasonry. His incorporation of the Thelemite elements proved controversial in the group. Fascinated by the O.T.O.'s emphasis on sex magic, Crowley devised a magical working based on anal sex and incorporated it into the syllabus for those O.T.O. members who had been initiated initiated into the 11th degree. His work with the O.T.O. is what would inspire Jack Parsons, who would later become a member in 1939 and eventually a high priest in the O.T.O. In 1914, Crowley made it to the shore of the US. He would travel around the US and visit several cities. Arriving in New York City, he moved into a hotel and began earning money writing for the American edition of Vanity Fair and undertaking freelance work for famed astrologer Evangeline Adams. In New York, he continued experimenting with sex magic through the use of masturbation, female prostitutes, and male clients of a Turkish bathhouse. All of these encounters were documented in his diaries. In 1915, Crowley entered into a relationship with Jean Robert Foster, with whom he toured the West Coast. In Vancouver, headquarters of the North American OTO, He met with Charles Stansfield Jones and Wilfred Talbot Smith to discuss the propagation of the on the continent. In Detroit, he experimented with peyote at Park Davis, then visited Seattle, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, Los Angeles, San Diego, Tijuana, and the Grand Canyon before returning to New York. Upon his return to New York, he befriended Ananda Kumersmoyeri, a Tamil metaphysician, pioneering historian, and philosopher of Indian art who is an early interpreter of Indian culture to the West. In particular, he is described as the groundbreaking theorist who is largely responsible for introducing ancient Indian art into the West. He also met his wife, Alice Richardson. Crowley and Richardson performed sex magic in April 1916, following which she became pregnant and then promptly miscarried. Later that year, he took a magical retirement to a cabin by Lake Pasquani in New Hampshire owned by Evangeline Adams. There, he made heavy use of drugs and undertook a ritual after which he proclaimed himself Master Therian. He also wrote several short stories based on J.G. Frazier's The Golden Bough and a work of literary criticism the Gospel according to Bernard Shaw. In 1920, Crowley would return to Italy, and here in Cephalou, Sicily, he formed the Abbey of Thelema, a commune populated by only Thelemites. The commune included a young Thelemite by the name of Raoul Loveday, who moved there with his wife, Betty May. May detested him and life at the commune. She later said that Loveday was made to drink the blood of a sacrificed cat and that they were required to cut themselves with razors every time they used the pronoun I. Loveday drank from a local polluted stream soon developing a liver infection resulting in his death in February 1923, which is ironic if you consider Crowley's previous diagnosis. Returning to London, May told her story to the press. John Bull proclaimed Crowley the wickedest man in the world and a man we'd like to hang. And although Crowley deemed many of their accusations accusations against him to be slanderous, he was unable to afford the legal fees to sue them. As a result, John Bull continued his attack, with its stories began repeated in newspapers throughout Europe and North America. The fascist government of Benito Mussolini learned of Crowley's activities and in April 1923 he was given a deportation notice, forcing him to leave Italy. Without him, the abbey closed. In the latter half of Crowley's life, he was plagued by several illnesses including asthma. When the Second World War broke out, Crowley wrote to the Naval Intelligence Division offering his services, but they declined. He associated with a variety of figures in Britain's intelligence community at the time including Dennis Wheatley, Roald Dahl, Ian Fleming, and Maxwell Knight and claimed to have been behind the V for Victory sign first used by the BBC, but this has never been proven. In 1940 his asthma worsened and with his German produced medication now unavailable thanks to the occupation of Nazi forces, he returned to using heroin, once again becoming addicted. As the Blitz hit London, Crowley relocated to Torquay, where he was briefly hospitalized with asthma and entertained himself with visits to the local chess club. Tiring of Torquay, he returned to London, where he was visited by American Thelemite Grady McMurdy, to whom Crowley awarded the title of Hymenius Alpha. Grady McMurdy was originally recruited to the LTO by none other than our friend, Jack Parsons. On the 1st of December 1947, Crowley died at Netherwood, a retirement home on the south coast of England of chronic bronchitis and myocardial degeneration at the age of 72. His funeral was held at a Brighton crematorium on December 5th, 1947. About a dozen people attended and Louis Wilkinson read excerpts from the Gnostic Mass, the Book of the Law, and Hymn to Pan. The funeral generator pressed controversy and was labeled a black mass by the tabloids. Crowley's ashes were sent to Carl Germer, leader of the OTO in the US, who buried them in his garden in Hampton, New Jersey. Crowley has remained an influential figure both amongst occultists and in popular culture, particularly that of Britain, but also other parts of the world. Crowley was an extreme representation of the dark side of the occult, and was the most notorious occultist figure of the 20th century. Thelema continued to develop and spread following Crowley's death. In 1969, the OTO was reactivated in California under the leadership of Grady McMurdy himself. In 1985, its right to the title was unsuccessfully challenged in court by a rival group, the Society Ordo Templi Orientis, led by Brazilian Thelemite Marcelo Ramos Moda. Another American Thelemite is the filmmaker Kenneth Anger. If he sounds familiar, he is a filmmaker who frequently featured the actor Mathis, who was in the United Kingdom Kenneth Grant propagated a tradition known as Thiphonian Thelema through his organization the Thiphonian OTO, later renamed the Thiphonian Order. Also in Britain, an occultist known as Amado Crowley claimed to be Crowley's son. This has been refuted by academic investigation. Amado argued that Thelema was a false religion created by Crowley to hide his true esoteric teachings which Amato claimed to be propagating. Over time, the OTO has faded into secrecy and obscurity, but there are surely those out there still secretly practicing. The following is an excerpt from the Book of the Law and outlines the Law of the Lima. This book lays down a simple code of conduct. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt. This means that each of us stars are to move on our true orbit as marked out by the nature of our position, the law of our growth, the impulse of our past experiences. All events are equally lawful and every one necessary in the long run for all of us in theory, but in practice, only one act is lawful for each one of us at any given moment. Therefore, duty consists in determining the experience the right event from one moment of consciousness to another. Each action or motion is an act of love the uniting with one or another part of Nuit. Each such act must be under will, chosen so as to fulfill and not to thwart the true nature of being concerned. The technical methods of achieving this are to be studied in magic or acquired by personal instruction from the Master Therion and his appointed assistants. There's a significance of a specific number in the religion of Thelema, and that number is 93. The number 93 is of great significance in Thelema and with Aleister Crowley with the writing of the Book of the Law, also known as Liber al Vellegis. The central philosophy of Thelema is in two phrases from Liber All. Do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law and love is the law, love under will. The two primary terms in these statements are will and love, respectively. In the Greek language, they are thelema, will, and agape, love. Using the Greek technique of isosophy, which applies a numerical value to each letter, the letters of each of these words sum to 93. So, the Greek spelling of Thelema is 9 plus 5 plus 30 plus 8 plus 40 plus 1 equals 93. The Greek spelling of Agape, 1 plus 3 plus 1 plus 80 plus 8 equals 93. It is common for Thelemites to greet each other with saying 93 in person as well as in the opening and closing of written correspondence. This custom derives from Aleister Crowley's guideline that Thelemites should greet each other with the law of Thelema by saying, Do without wilt shall be the whole law. Since saying the entire law can be cumbersome, using 93 has become a kind of shorthand. There's an interesting scene from one of my favorite documentaries, Hell Year 2, where the members of the team have an encounter with 93 in the context of Thelema and his extremely compelling entertainment. They learn this fact from an expert on the occult. This leads to another conversation of ongoing synchronicities around paranormal activity and high strangeness occurrences. They also discussed Jack Parson's experiments being a possible trigger for UFO and alien abduction activity. These occurrences are best explained in a theatrical movie of all things called Repo Man, where a character by the name of Miller opines on the subject.
2: A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this like lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. I'll give you an example. I'll show you what I mean. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue, no explanation, no point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. read a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? I'll give you another instance. You know the way everybody's into weirdness right now? Books in all the supermarkets about muted triangles, UFOs, how the Mayans invented television, that kind of thing? I don't read books. Well, the way I see it, it's exactly the same. There ain't no difference between a flying saucer and a time machine. People get so hung up on specifics they miss out on seeing the whole thing. Take South America, for example. In South America, thousands of people go missing every year. Nobody knows where they go. They just like Disappear. There had to be a time when there was no people, right? Yeah, I guess. Where did all these people come from? Hmm? I'll tell you where. The future. Where did all these people disappear to? Hmm? The past? That's right. And how'd they get there? How the fuck do I know? Flying saucers. Which are really... Yeah, you got it. Time machines.
0: I just want to take a couple, few seconds to apologize for all the background notification sounds. Um, You know, talk about phenomenon and synchronicities... No one wants to text me all day or call me as soon as I start recording for the podcast on the phone. I'm the most popular person on the planet at that point in time. So please excuse the little background dings, pops, pings, and whatever else you hear. Um, You know, this is a DIY podcast. I do approach this podcast with the punk rock attitude of fuck it. So, I hope it doesn't irritate you guys too much, and I hope it doesn't affect the listening of the show, and I appreciate you guys looking past it. So, thank you.
3: Alright, so we're going to talk about Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard, and their Babylon Working. In 1945, now disassociated with the JPL and Aerojet, Parsons and Foreman founded the Ad Astra Engineering Company, under which Parsons founded the chemical manufacturing Vulcan Powder Company. Ad Astra was subject to an FBI investigation under suspicion of espionage when security agents from the Manhattan Project discovered that Parsons and Foreman had procured a chemical used in a top-secret project for a material known only as X-Metal, but they were later acquitted of any wrongdoing. Parsons continued to financially support Smith and Helen, although he asked for a divorce from her and ignored Crowley's commands by welcoming Smith back to the Parsonage. Jack's palatal estate in pasadena was operated as his home base when his retreat was finished parsons continued to hold oto activities at the parsonage but began renting rooms at the house to non-thelemites including journalist Neeson himmel manhattan project physicist robert cornog and science fiction artist Louis Goldstone, Parsons attracted controversy in Pasadena for his preferred clientele. Parsonage resident Alva Rogers recalled in a 1962 article for an occultist fanzine, and I quote, in the ads placed in the local paper, Jack specified that only bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or any other exotic types need to apply for rooms. Any mundane souls would be unceremoniously rejected. End quote. Science fiction writer and U.S. Navy officer L. Ron Hubbard soon moved into the Parsonage and Parsons became close friends with him. Parsons wrote to Crowley that although Hubbard had no formal training in magic, he was an extraordinary extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduce he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He is the most thematic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles." Parsons and Sarah Northrup were in an open relationship, encouraged by the OTO's polyadorous sexual ethics, and she became enamored with Hubbard's. Parsons, despite attempting to repress his passions, became intensely jealous against the Code of the dilemma. Motivated to find a new partner through occult means, Parsons began to devote his energies to conducting black magic causing concerns among fellow OTO members who believed that it was invoking troublesome spirits into the parsonage. Jane Wolfe wrote to Crowley that, and I quote, Our own Jack is enamored with witchcraft and voodoo. From the start, he always wanted to invoke something, no matter what. I am inclined to think as long as he got a result, end quote. He told the residents that he was imbuing statues in the house with a magical energy in order to sell them to fellow occultists. Parsons reported paranormal events in the house resulting from the rituals, including disembodied voices, poltergeist activity, sightings of orbs and ghastly apparitions, acrimal effects, and on the weather, of course. Pendle suggested that Parsons was particularly susceptible to these interpretations and attributed the voices to a prank by Hubbard and Sarah. One ritual allegedly brought screaming banshees to the windows of the Parsonage, an incident that disturbed Foreman for the rest of his life. In December 1945, Parsons began a series of rituals based on Enocean magic during which he masturbated onto magical tablets accompanied by Sergei Prokofiev's second violin concerto. Describing this magical operation as the Babylon working, he hoped to bring about the incarnation of the Thelemite goddess Babylon onto Earth. He allowed Hubbard to take part as his scribe, believing that he was particularly sensitive to detecting the magical phenomenon. As described by Richard Metzger, quote, Parsons jerked off in the name of spiritual advancement, end quote, while Hubbard scanned the astral plane for signs and visions. Their final ritual took place in the Mojave Desert in late February of 1946, during which Parsons abruptly decided that his undertaking was complete. On returning to the parsonage, he discovered that Marjorie Cameron, an unemployed illustrator and former Navy WAVE or WAVE, woman accepted for voluntary emergency services, had come to visit, believing her to be the elemental woman and manifestation of Babylon that he had invoked. In early March, and Parsons began performing sex magic rituals with Cameron, who acted as his Scarlet Woman, while Hubbard continued to participate as the scribe. Unlike the rest of the household, Cameron knew something at first of Parsons' magical intentions, and I quote, I didn't know anything about the OTL, I didn't know that they had invoked me, I didn't know anything, but the whole house knew it, everybody was watching to see what was going on, end quote. Despite this ignorance and her skepticism about Parsons' magics. Cameron reported her sightings of a UFO to Parsons, who secretly recorded the sighting as a materialization of Babylon. Inspired by Crowley's novel, Moonchild, made in 1917, Parsons and Hubbard aimed to magically fertilize a magical child through Immaculate Conception, which would then be born to a woman somewhere on earth nine months following the working's completion. And become the Thelemic Messiah embodying Babylon. To quote Metzger, the purpose of the Babylon working as a daring attempt to shatter the boundaries of space and time, facilitating, according to Parsons, the emergence of dilemma Eon of ours. When Cameron departed for a trip to New York, Parsons retreated to the desert, where he believed that a perpetu- per. Pre- the per- preternatural entity psychographically provided him with Liber 49, which represented a fourth part of Crowley's The Book of Law, the primary sacred text of Thelema, as part of a new sacred text he called The Book of Babylon. Crowley was bewildered and concerned by the endeavor, complaining to Germer of being fairly frantic when I contemplate the idiocy of the louts believing that Babylon working was accomplished. Parsons sold the parsonage to developers for $25,000, under the condition that he and Cameron could continue to live in the coach house, and he appointed Roy Leffingwell to head the Agape Lodge, which would now have to meet elsewhere for its rituals. Parsons co-founded a company called Allied Enterprises with Hubbard and Sarah, into which Parsons invested his life savings of $20,970. Hubbard suggested that with this money they traveled to Miami to purchase three yachts, which they would then sail through the Panama Canal to the west coast, where they could sell them for a profit. Parsons agreed, but many of his friends thought it was a bad idea. Hubbard had secretly requested permission from the U.S. Navy to sail to China and South and Central America on a mission to collect writing material. His real plans were for a world cruise left flat broke by his defrauding. Parsons was incensed with when he discovered that Hubbard and Sarah had left for Miami with $10,000 of the money. He suspected a scam but was placated by a telephone call from Hubbard and agreed to remain business partners. When Crowley, in a telegram to Germer, dismissed Parsons as a weak fool and victim to Hubbard and Sarah's obvious confidence trick, Parsons changed his mind, flew to Miami and placed a temporary injunction and restraining order on them. Upon tracking them down to a harbor in County Causeway, Parsons discovered that the couple had purchased three yachts as planned. They tried to flee aboard one, but hit a squall and were forced to return to port. Parsons was convinced that when he had brought them to shore through a lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram containing an astrological geomanic invocation of Barzabel, a vengeful spirit of Mars. Allied enterprises were discovered, and in a court settlement, Hubbard was required to promise to reimburse Parsons. (laughs) Parsons was discouraged from taking further action by Sarah, who threatened to report him for statutory rape since their sexual relationship took place when he was under California's agreement of consent of 18. Parsons was ultimately compensated with only $2,900. Hubbard already married to Margaret Grubb. They begamously married Sarah and went on to found Dianetics and Scientology. The Sunday Times published an article about Hubbard's involvement with the OTO and, Paul and Parsons' occult activities in December 1969. In response, the Church of Scientology released an unsubstantial press statement which said that Hubbard had been sent as an undercover agent by the U.S. Navy to intercept and destroy Parsons' quote, black magic cult. And save Sarah from its influence. The church also stated that Robert A. Hinland was the clandestine Navy operative who sent in Hubbard to undertake this operation. Returning to California, Parsons completed the sale of the parsonage, which was then demolished, and resigned from the O.T.O. He wrote in his letter to Crowley that he did not believe that, and again a quote. As an autocratic organization, the OTO constitutes a true and proper medium for the expression and attainment of the In
0: 1952, Parsons reconciled with Cameron, and they resumed their relationship and moved into a former coach house on Orange Grove Avenue. Parsons converted its large first floor laundry room into a home laboratory to work on his chemical and pyrotechnic projects, home brew absinthe, and stockpile a home laboratory of materials. Parsons and Cameron decided to travel to Mexico for a few months, both for a vacation and for Parsons to take up a job opportunity, establishing an explosive factory for the Mexican government. They hoped that this would facilitate a move to Israel where they could start a family and where Parsons could bypass the US government to rec- recommence his rocketry career. He was particularly disturbed by the presidents of the FBI, convinced that they were spying on him. On June 17, 1952, a day before their planned departure, Parsons received a rush order of explosives for a film set And began to work on it in his home laboratory. An explosion destroyed the lower part of the building during which Parsons sustained mortal wounds. His right forearm was amputated, his legs and left arm were broken, and a hole was torn into the right side of his face. Despite these critical injuries, Parsons was found conscious by the upstairs lodgers. He tried to communicate with the arriving ambulance workers who rushed him to the Huntington Memorial Hospital where he was declared dead approximately 37 minutes after the explosion. When his mother Ruth learned of his death, she immediately took a fatal overdose of barbiturates. Pasadena Police Department criminologist Don Harding led the official investigation. He concluded that Parsons had been mixing fulminate of mercury in a coffee can when he dropped it on the floor causing the initial explosion which worsened when it came into contact with other chemicals in the room. His longtime friend and partner Foreman considered this likely stating that Parsons often had sweaty hands and could have easily dropped the can. Some of Parsons colleagues rejected this explanation saying that he was very attentive about safety. Two colleagues from the Burmite Powder Company described Parsons' work habits as scrupulously neat and exceptionally cautious. The latter statement from chemical engineer George Santemers insisted that the explosion must have come from beneath the floorboards, implying an organized plot to kill Parsons. Harding accepted that these inconsistencies were incongruous but described that the manner in which Parsons had stored his chemicals as criminally negligent, and noted that Parsons had previously been investigated by the police for illegally storming chemicals at the Parsonage. He also found a morphine-filled syringe at the scene, suggesting that Parsons was narcotized. The police saw insufficient evidence to continue the investigation and closed the case as an accidental death. Jack Parson's legacy is one of duality. He had great impact on both the occult and scientific communities. English Thelemite Kenneth Grant believed that Parson's Babylon working marked the start of the appearance of flying saucers in the skies, leading to phenomena such as the Roswell UFO incident and the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting. He viewed the summoning of the goddess Babylon as a trigger for UFO phenomena. Parsons was a six-foot-two, charismatic, and considered the James Dean of the occult, according to occult writer Richard Mesger, who we've mentioned previously. Parsons was responsible for seven U.S. patents related to rocketry and science, He was also the biggest influence aside from Crowley and Anton LaVey for Western mysticism. He was a disciple of the wickedest man alive, Aleister Crowley. Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard performed magic rituals with him, stole his girlfriend, and conned him out of his life savings. The rockets that he helped develop eventually put the U.S. on the moon. He was a dapper, strapping, gentleman, scientific genius patriot who laughed and scoffed in the face of conventional thinking. He was also a high priest of magic, a ritualistic sex participant, and an outcast among outcasts. He befriended some of the most notorious men in Western culture and died from a shocking, still controversial accident at a relatively young age. He is an example that belief in the strange and dark side of what's out there does not show a lack of intelligence or sanity, nor a gullibility. Jack Parsons was an imperfect man in an imperfect world and lived life how he felt it should be lived without regard to what anyone thought of him or his friends. Here's a quick list of some facts about Jack Parsons and his life that were still very quite interesting, but just didn't really fit the long-form narrative of the show. So, number one, there's a crater on the moon named after him. The crater is simply called Parsons, and it's located on the dark side of the moon, of course. Number two, he worked for Howard Hughes. In order to make ends meet later in his life, Parsons worked for another eccentric figure, the aviator himself, at Hughes Aviation. According to the Daily Dot, Parsons smuggled secret documents relating to some of Hughes' projects out of the company, which caused him legal trouble as he happened to also be working for the Israeli government at the time. Number three, he was in the original Suicide Squad. According to Air and Space, Parsons, his childhood friend and engineer Ed Foreman, and Caltech grad student Frank Molina were dubbed the Suicide Squad when they started running rocket experiments on campus by concerned students. This was almost 20 years later before the phrase premiered in DC Comics. It's also a grim nickname and a harbinger of things to come. Number four, he was a writer of poetry. He wrote the following, I, Height, Don Quixote, I live on peyote. Marijuana, morphine, and cocaine, I never knew sadness, but only a madness that Burns at the heart and the brain. Yes, his poetry was about drugs, apparently. The above verse opens the LA Times article, which reveals that in childhood, Parsons was most interested in reading poetry and Jules Verne science fiction. Number five, he bootlegged nitroglycerin. This is another way that the LA Times said Parsons used to get cash after quitting Caltech. Why not? A rocket scientist, Parsons was good with explosives after all. And finally, number six, he put away criminals. He was often called in as an expert witness in bomb trials. Most notably, was called in as an expert on the attempted murder trial of police officer Captain Earl Connett. Connett was a notorious figure in Los Angeles police and gang history. He headed a secret intelligence unit that had surveilled and spied on political enemies and city leaders. One of them was Private Eye Harry Raymond. Connett and members of his team planted a bomb in Raymond's car, which exploded, but Raymond survived. Captain Connett was later convicted of the bombing and served a lengthy prison sentence. When he was released from prison, he worked as a pharmacist until his passing. Alright listeners, uh, one word to describe Jack Parsons... Our, the subject of our episode this week would be exuberant a man who knows a lot about exuberant personalities because he does have one himself is the host of the irrationally exuberant podcast mr. Reed Messerschmidt that Hello. gentleman as you heard is my surprise guest this week and uh, Reed go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners
1: yeah my name is Reed I make the irrationally exuberant, uh, scripted, absurdist, pop culture, history, storytelling, whatever I want it to be kind of thing. Um, it's pretty wild. Uh, I used to do a show called Read Messagement Get Metal with Robert Piller, uh, where we talked about metal, and uh, yeah, that's it. That's, that's what
0: I do. Rationally Exuberant is a podcast, but it's also art. It is also art, yeah. uh, My first contact with hearing anything about Reed and what he was doing was through the uh, podcast he mentioned secondly, which was Reed Gets Metal with Robert Piller. Um, In my opinion, it's still the greatest podcast concept that's ever been created. (laughs) Uh, It was highly entertaining, highly hilarious. Um, it could at times be exceptionally awkward, but that's what made it even greater to me. Um, Reed, if you'd like to explain the premises of that show, um, for the listeners who are unfamiliar.
1: Yeah. So, um, I realized at some point that I knew nothing about metal, uh, like heavy metal music, any of the forms of metal. I was, you know, sort of familiar with, uh, I mean, I know Metallica, I I was a teenager in the 90s, I couldn't avoid Metallica, Um, and a few other things, Sabbath and whatnot, Um, but I hadn't really dove into it, and it seemed to be like it was this vast, like, subculture that was completely cut off from, like, the greater monoculture, or whatever you want to call it, um... And I wanted to figure out what it was about. And I worked with this guy named Robert, who is covered in tattoos and loves uh, black metal and cattle decapitation. And uh, he seemed a little scary to me, um, but he turned out not to be his real sweetheart. Uh, (laughs) So, I, you know, uh, we just explored metal every week. He would bring a new band to the table, and I would just dive in and listen to everything they ever put out and we'd talk about it it was
0: fun the only two questions i have regarding uh reed gets metal are number one do you still love slayer and two do you still absolutely hate folk metal
1: oh man yes i'm gonna address two first because i so much hate folk metal i mean i haven't like explored much of it um beyond what robert El vete uh, specifically, I just, I cannot stand, um, and yes, I like Slayer, I saw Slayer live not too long ago, and it was great.
0: That was another great element of your guys' show, was um, you and Robert coming back at the uh, start of every episode, and describing the local metalheads that you encountered at various <laughs> shows. Uh, because I've been there, done that, and I lived that lifestyle. I've been a metalhead since, like, seventh grade. Yeah. Um, you know, we got into gateway bands, like stuff that you absolutely hated, like Slipknot, Limp Biscuit. you know, all that cool new uh, rap metal stuff, and then from there just escalated into heavy bands. But I've seen just about everything you can possibly see at a heavy metal show, so it was a delight to know that metalheads in Fargo are the same as they are out here in the West Coast. You know, you always have that one shirtless sweaty guy. Uh, mm-hmm. You always have the guy that was drunk before he showed up. Right. Um, you always have the guy that's just, uh, you know, the uh, what we call in the uh, genre the impress me bro. He's going to stand at the front and the very front of the crowd with his arms crossed until he sees something he likes. And then past that point, he's all in. So.
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, still to this day... My favorite thing that I've ever seen at a concert was right in front of Robert and I. There was this guy. Oh, what was he wearing? He was dressed in some ridiculous, like, hand outfit or something. I, I don't, He'd been in some bar crawl, and he was wearing some ridiculous onesie. Um, he, he was trying to fight some other guy. and a big real tough while also wearing a ridiculous onesie. And uh, it was it was amazing.
0: I, I bet, dude. I mean, uh, metal has given me some of my favorite memories of all time. So I'm yeah, sure everyone... you know, I am
1: I'm, I'm so glad that we did it. Uh, it might come back someday. I don't know. I just I just had a baby six months ago, and I just don't have the time. Um, but yeah, I'm really I still. I mean, I'm still listening to metal. I mean, especially black metal. I keep coming back to black metal. It's just so... It's so great. And it, it it's I sort of love it for the same aspects of it the, of the thing we're going to talk about today.
0: Right, just how wild it is, right?
1: It's wild. It's wild and it's a it's it's ridiculous and it's funny in its way. And it's also super dark and uh, it, it, and actually good. <laughs> so, you know, it's got everything that I I got a love. Right. in a thing.
0: Now, I could sit and talk with metal with anyone for hours on end, and I don't want to bog down. You know, I'm calling you late as it is. Um, You know, I'm on West Coast time, so the sun's still up here. I know it's getting late for you, and you guys got kids and everything, so I don't want to keep you. But uh, the reason I got in contact with you was because you reached out on Instagram and said, hey, I'm available to be a guest. And to my surprise and amazement, you gave a small time DIY podcaster a chance, and I appreciate you for that. And I'm grateful to have you as a guest. Um, The topic that we are covering this week is on the individual known as Jack Parsons. Um, And, uh, you know, I was just fascinated by Jack's life story. Um, You know, you have this guy that's completely duplicitous. Um, On one side, he's like a stringent, scientifically based mind in the laboratory. I think he has something like seven U.S. patents to his name. Um, Basically, without his work in the rocketeering field, we would have probably never gotten to the moon. And then on the flip side of this, he's, you know, basically a lackey of Aleister Crowley. And he was in all these dark secret orders. And he had these crazy stories of being out of his mind on drugs in the middle of the desert, you know, masturbating onto pentagrams for the sake of... uh, participating in what they believe to be ritualistic sex magic so it's like
1: masturbating on pentagrams while l ron hubbard took notes
0: (laughs) right exactly (laughs) don't forget that aspect of it right you have the guy that eventually would go on to form another completely nuts religious you know community in scientology and he started out basically writing notes about a dude whacking off onto a pentagram <laughs> in the Mojave. So it's like, okay, that's a guy I want to follow.
1: Yeah. Pretty amazing.
0: So in, um, in your research, because I feel like you've covered some of these topics for the irrationally exuberant, uh, yeah. what are some of the most fascinating facts that you uncovered in dealing with Crowley or Parsons?
1: You know, okay, so I, I did a deep dive into Crowley this week. Um, uh, I mean, I, I've been aware of him. I've read some Crowley. I like stuff like that. I would consider myself a true agnostic about just about everything. Um, you know, I, I, I like reading about UFOs. I like reading about cults. Um, it's all—it's all possible. We don't know that much. When you get down to it, I think we're learning in like quantum physics that everything we know might not be correct. Right. Uh, so I like to keep an open mind. And uh, Crowley is probably the most interesting human being that's ever lived. Uh, he has kind of his influence just
0: radiates out so many different directions Absolute, <laughs> terrifying, absolutely yeah a-
1: and I uh, aside from being one of the most fascinating people that ever lived he's also one of the worst people that ever lived I, I would say um it's a. It's, uh, uh, it's been a, a dark week getting into his stuff um there's just so much <laughs> Yeah. So, so much to talk about um, I read the book of the law for the first time this week
0: yeah talk uh, about blowing your own mind getting into some of that text and just oh, his boy. writing style alone trying to grasp that
1: it is a chore um, but it is pretty you know he had something he did have something uh, I think that this, the the biggest shock was reading the book of the law and kind of um, uh, kind of feeling the influence that he has in our modern society. Right. Uh, um. All for worse, I would say. All for worse, not for better or for worse. All for worse. <laughs> right. Uh, it's it's just the whole. It, it feels like it exists in the background of everything that's going on right now. I don't know if it does. I'm not, like, uh, much of a conspiracy guy, but um, the tone of the book of the law feels like it is very present these days.
0: Right. Yeah, I would definitely agree. It's, um, You know, that's the thing about doing these paranormal-type subjects on podcasts is, like, uh, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole and come out wearing a tinfoil hat. But, right. you know, you come across some of these um, links, some of the relationships these guys have, and you see, like, oh, this guy was in this organization and he was friends with this guy. And then you kind of look, step back and look at it for the broader view. And it's like, whoa, you know, it kind of opens I mean, the, your eyes. The biggest one, right, is that there's a solid
1: chance that Crowley it was Barbara Bush's father. Right. Uh, that's, uh, something. That his, his, uh, her, her mother spent a significant amount of time with Crowley in England. I think they were in England at the time. He, he moved around so much, I'm not sure. But, um, she spent a lot of time with him. Um, her sister was very close, Crowley. And, uh, after she left... Eight months later, she
0: gave birth to
1: Barbara Bush. Which is just insane. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's... uh, It's troubling, to say the least.
0: Are you like me? Do you miss the good old days when Bush was the bad president?
1: Oh, God. I mean, he's still the bad president, but he's... he's yeah I, i do a little bit i hate how i hate that i do right but
0: um yeah a little bit my wife and i often talk about that like do you remember how much fun we used to make of him and like when we were in high school and watching all his decisions and you know all his mispronunciations on these uh you know talks that he would do and then the whole thing where he couldn't figure out how to open the door and then, you know, choking on a pretzel, falling off the couch and almost dying, and, like, yeah. just all that stuff, and, like, you know, we thought that was the most ridiculous thing at the time, and then you fast-forward to the times we're in now, and it's like, uh, I kind of miss Bush a little bit.
1: Yeah, right. You know, and, uh uh, to say, Donald Trump kind of looks like if <laughs> Alistair Crowley, you know, had been addicted
0: to Cheese Whiz instead of heroin. Right. <laughs> That's a great observation. <laughs>
1: they do. They look similar. Yeah. Um, excuse, face, excuse but, my dogs uh, there in the background. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It is bad times. Um, but yeah, the, the the curly stuff about the elect and not caring about anybody but yourself and the advancement of power. Um, mm, Yeah, it feels very true. Right.
0: Seems like someone along the way was actually listening.
1: Right, right. I mean, you you can be as skeptical as you want about his mystical powers, and thalema and all of that i certainly am real skeptical um but his ideology is, it's, it's it, it caught on
0: right basically the core concept of the only thing is the will um you know right. your will and you know do what thou wilt and all that good stuff
1: yeah you can really convince yourself that there is uh a giant visible cabal of Thelma mites, uh, Running the world right now Right That are, and uh, pretending to be Christians
0: <laughs> <laughs> Right Now, I don't want to go too far into that rabbit hole Because we might get Clinton'd But uh, <laughs> On Jack Parsons, you know yeah, Since he, he is our central subject He's a little more
1: easy to contain
0: Yeah I get the feeling that, you know, Jack he you know, living the solitary childhood that he did, a lot of that contributed to his outlandish behavior later on in life Um, you know, he he grew up rich and all that and yeah, they were wealthy, but basically he sequestered himself into his bedroom uh, and just read all day, didn't have really that many friends, Um, you know, his parents didn't let him do too much it was basically like, hey, you're gonna you know, go through the system, how it is, and be this, and, you know, he was anti-everything that his parents kind of wanted him to be, and I think that's a lot to do with how he turned out.
1: Yeah, go to your room and summon a demon. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, the uh, the founder of Scientology ran off with my life savings and my girlfriend. I think I'll just summon one. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And to, to me, you can draw a, del- a direct line from Jack Parsons, like straight to some of the Chan websites out there on the internet. These neck-bearded yeah. guys that are now trying to summon tolpas, and you know, <laughs> supposedly the, these are the guys that are sitting in their mom's basement behind a computer screen, and they made Slender Man a real thing by believing in him so much. Yeah, and conjure up My Little Pony characters. So. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but. Uh, I'm against it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, he is kind of an archetype. I mean, the difference between Jack Parsons, I think, and what we have now is that he was kind of a, you know, by all accounts, a, a handsome, charming,
4: genuinely brilliant man. Right, Um, that kind of
1: never was able to channel it in exactly the right way. I mean, he obviously channeled it in some correct ways. I mean, he invented jet propulsion. You know, like I mean, he he, solid jet fuel. Like he he did a lot of good.
0: Right. Um, Personally, he was never able to channel that in the direction um, that would have been beneficial to him. Right, yeah, it ended up ultimately leading to his destruction.
1: Right, as so often happens. Right. Um but yeah, a lot of the guys um doing the same thing, um, getting getting uh derailed by esoteric and uh darker and weirder and crueler ideologies. Um they are lacking his good qualities.
0: Right. <laughs> right. And then you end up with the guys we have to this day.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's them. They're, they're all the bad stuff and none of the good. It's like if, you know, if Michael Jackson hadn't been capable of writing Billy Jean, you know, <laughs> right. he would just been like a guy you didn't want living next to you.
0: Right, he was just a guy that could dance but didn't have any music to dance to.
1: Yeah, like, oh man, yeah, that guy Mike next door—he's a great dancer. But don't let the kids. Don't let the kids in his <laughs>
0: right. house. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what do you make of all this um, pedophile ring talk that we're embroiled in at the moment? Do you think that's something that's factual? Do you think it's being blown out of proportion? That's something that's real. That's just getting carried away.
1: Well, it's definitely being blown out of – well, I don't know what to think about it. What do you think about it?
0: Well, if I may put my tinfoil hat on just for a little bit, I think a lot of it is blown out of proportion for the sake of a diversionary tactic. Yeah. Like, hey, look over here. um, You know, There's this thing going on. You don't care about what we're doing here in the White House. There's bigger problems afoot. Right, But at the same time, obviously, there was issues with, um, you know, the whole Epstein thing. I mean, I don't think he's completely innocent. Um, And then you have Ghislaine Maxwell, her part that she played in the whole ordeal. I don't think all of that is completely false, which is sad. Um, But at the same time, I don't think it goes all the way down to like a cult level, like they're painting a picture of it. Or yeah. you know, if you go back even further or even deeper down into the wormhole, you get into the lizard people and the Illuminati and the Denver Airport and all that good stuff. So
1: it all connects,
0: doesn't it? Right, everything's it, connected. It all,
1: I, if you if you go deep enough, it all connects. And a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it connects back to Crowley. And a lot of you know the Jack Parsons thing is like, I mean, I love reading about UFOs. One of my favorite things to do. And there is a line of thought that, um, you know, Jack Parsons is responsible for opening whatever gate began the 1947
0: UFO craze. Right. So basically him and Elrond, when they were doing the Babylon workings, which was where they were trying to summon the moon child, um, which was the, you know, the magically based child that was going to be blessed upon a woman to give birth to. Basically, an immaculate, um, you know, birth from the yeah. gods that they believed in was basically the catalyst for UFO activity and the aliens coming to visit. It was like they they basically ripped a hole in the space time com- time continuum to borrow for <laughs> some tar- Star Trek lore, and uh, you know, invited the aliens in. Right? Yeah.
1: There's that. <laughs> I mean, the timing's right. I guess.
0: Which um, is a thought, I guess, you could go down that rabbit hole, and I mean, I can't necessarily say that I have enough information to refute that claim, but who knows? Yeah, I, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. It's, that's the thing about all this stuff. It's hard to refute.
0: It's kind of, to me, it's like that movie, I don't know if you've ever seen it, with Jim Carrey called 23. I know about it. I have not seen it. And basically, like, he's linking all these things together. And the more he links things together, the more he unveils, you know, yeah. to link together to the same thing, and you come to find out he's just crazy at the end. And I think a lot of this, if you go too deep into it, and you believe too much into what you're reading and, you know, listening to, you can get stuck in that trap.
1: Yeah, you can see it everywhere. I I feel like I kind of evaded the, <laughs> the sex trafficking thing. So, okay, here's my thought on it, right? <laughs> Um, again, I'm staying agnostic about it. Anything's possible, right? It's right. always in the background. Anything's possible. I don't know. I think that we live in a culture right now, um, it kind of comes back to this true crime obsession that is going on at the moment where everybody's a private investigator all the time. Right. And is, is just, scouring the internet for clues and connections right and they're there to be made but uh, it can yeah like you said if you start looking for the number 23 you're gonna find it everywhere
4: right
1: it's just it's just the way it's just the way the mind works you make connections it's like watching uh, you know it's like playing music and watching a cartoon on mute you know right when you you know when you're a teenager smoking weed, that seems like the, a good way to spend an evening.
0: Right, or um, even without weed, that's what we call the baby psychedelics.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, I mean, it works amazingly well. It is. It is mind blowing while it's happening. Um, but it It's, uh, it's uh, totally random. You can play any piece of music with any cartoon, and it works. So right. I. Yeah, I, I I feel like people are really getting off on their feeling of uncovering
0: something. Right. And if you guys, as the listeners, don't believe what Reed is saying, all you really have to do is look at our industry of podcasting. Uh, You can go on Spotify right now, search true crime podcasts. You're going to have page upon page (sighs) upon page of endless upon endless amounts of content for true crime, murder mysteries, even the occult, Um, you know, kind of the things I deal with, some paranormal stuff bleeds into true crime as well. Um, yeah. so yeah i definitely would agree with that sentiment
1: yeah i don't like it <laughs> i do, i just it just leaves a bad case on so it it seems so like oh it just seems like people taking pleasure in other people suffering
0: to right. me basically what uh my wife and i call m- murder porn
1: murder porn yeah yeah or just even just misery porn i i mean it's just
0: People, and people making themselves miserable. Right. Especially uh, during this time when, you know, we need we need more positivity more than ever. Um, yeah. You know, we need more uh, irrationally exuberant podcasts. Right. About, um, you know, ladies that wore barrels and jumped off of waterfalls. And, uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, right. I mean, that's the stuff that's interesting to me. I mean, yeah, there's some suffering involved in some of it, but it's all... I like... Weird stories of people um, that are just doing their thing, right? And, no matter how little sense it makes, um, that's that's what I dig. Um, and and the possibilities of of reality, I do like. I like that too. You know, it's the same. I, the same reason that Jack Parsons and Alistair Crowley are interesting to me is the same reason that I enjoy. You know, reading about UFOs, even though I don't know, or say, you know, I'm not dogmatic about anything. Um, I th- I do think that there is something in the world that we have completely overlooked. I think there's a huge aspect, just even scientifically, that we are missing, and, and that is what propels my interest in all of this stuff. Right? Um, like, there's just something. There's something that we haven't figured out yet.
0: Well, that's why my podcast um is it coming into existence, you know, it started out as just basically asking questions and interviewing guests and digging deep into these stories to see, you know, what what questions can we answer you yeah. know, just by investigating these things and maybe looking like taking deep dives into certain subjects or certain people that were important in those um, you know, paranormal, esoteric, occult type communities. Yeah.
1: It's interesting it's, it's just it's a good thing to think about but I, it is it's so easy to get caught up in it um, you've, you gotta keep uh, somewhat of an objective mind about this stuff because right. if you want to if you let yourself if you let your guard down um, you could definitely start thinking that Crowley was on to something
0: right and if you believe in all the stories I've told on the podcast hands down, um, you're not going to have a very good time sleeping at night because basically every monster under the bed in the closet and down the hall is coming to get you so it's I not mean, a if very you all
1: start to feel pretty hopeless. yeah right? it's not a very peaceful existence all this, like I mean you can't just you can't just <laughs> I feel like it's what's happening right now to society is like the ground is crumbling and not being replaced with anything right Concrete, you know like it's like you the the bridge has been taken from under us and somebody was like well here's you know here's a bowl of jello instead or like i you know that's yeah. a bad
0: amount. well i mean uh, look at what happened when sports came back people collectively lost their damn minds on something that we've always had and you know right. we were deprived for just a few months of it and people were ready to go jump off bridges and things just because they couldn't watch the NBA or the MLB or we'll see what happens eventually with the NFL coming up. But you know, that's, that's just an example of what you're saying.
1: Yeah. I think sports are really kind of the last remnant of the monoculture, um, that we've sort of lost and like just the simple, simple monoculture, you know, it's not something you have to think about or worry about. Right. Um, I, it doesn't interest me at all, but I, I understand it. I mean, it's comforting Right, I'll, I'll get upset and argue about things that ultimately don't matter.
0: Well, I mean, I've always said that sports is a, you know, a simulated version of warfare. Um, and yeah. being a spectator of that is like something primal in the human uh, mind that's like, you know, satisfying to us. We want to see someone beat someone else, and it makes us feel better about ourselves on, uh, on some primal level. And, you know, being deprived of a basic human, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say necessity because we could really do without sports if it came down to it. But definitely a need for, like, entertainment value or a distraction.
1: Well, I think part of it is just that you have this whole population that's watching one thing at the same time.
0: Right. right, Which
1: doesn't happen anywhere else anymore.
0: The connectivity of it, you mean?
1: Yeah, it feels like you're doing something as a nation I don't know, that's probably an exaggeration but at least everybody in your area is, or everybody that you consider a peer anyway, is watching the same thing at the same time Right. I think there's some there's there's a lot of appeal to that
0: Now you had mentioned um, people doing things that they like doing, Uh, what's on the horizon for Reed and uh, the Irrationally Exuberant?
1: Oh, I have so many episodes finished right now. I just I felt like writing and recording, and I did that and didn't release anything for a few months. Um, so uh, I've got an episode on UFOs that is coming up. It's half about UFOs, and then the other half is about my father. So um, that's kind of one of my favorite things to do is to should turn something into being about something else
0: right and if you guys listen to his show you'll know exactly um, what he means Um, yeah
1: I you know like I I, I would use probably the Johnny Appleseed episode as the main example (laughs) where it starts out it it is about Johnny the historic Johnny Appleseed right he also does have a, a sexual relationship with Bigfoot um, and there's, you know, uh, some religious, uh, what's the guy's name? Why can't I think of the guy's name? Swedenborg, uh, gets into a little Swedenborg too. Um, who's another interesting fellow, but, um, yeah, I, li- I like to find the other stuff. So yeah, there's, there's UFOs and my dad, <laughs> which he's, he's gonna, he's not going to like, it's going to be. Uh, It's going to cause a lot of problems for me.
0: (laughs) Oh, no. See, that's the the bad thing about being a podcaster is the honesty (laughs) that you have to have. And uh, sometimes honesty is not the best for people.
1: Right. Well, I haven't talked to my dad in three years, and this is uh, about what his problems are. But, um, yeah, that'll be coming out. That's a good one, I think. Um, I wrote a kind of a longish short story about a fictional Daredevil in the vein of Evil Knievel Um, that's going to be a long episode Um, what else Uh, the Mandela effect
0: see the Mandela effect going back to what we were talking about that's another thing that if you go too deep down you could lose your mind possibly uh, trying to figure out all those connections
1: right Uh, that one to me though is like it's so easily explained like it's obvious it's just misremembering unimportant details from your childhood right? you know <laughs> like it's, it's,
0: it's like so nothing and people are like oh I remember it like that too well you know there's such thing as massive misremembering as well you know we were all kids we all right. probably didn't have the greatest information and at the time we didn't bother to go looking for it so you know we could have yeah. missed some things and, and the name Bernstein Bears just sounds more natural. That's all it is. <laughs> right. You know, the,
1: the name of the people that wrote it is just different than what you think it should be. I don't know. Right. Um, it's crazy. My favorite theory about that is just, uh, just totally sidetracked is that um, when you die of unnatural causes, your consciousness um, kind of scoots over to the next parallel dimension um and your life goes on as though you just had a near-death experience but since you're in a parallel dimension um things are a tiny tiny bit different right um so like in the dimension that you're leaving you're dead but you don't know that you're in the next dimension um it's a very comforting quote-unquote theory uh with zero basis in anything which is kind of why i like it
0: yeah absolutely uh, now, um, do you have any plans or any plans that you can talk about on um, being featured as a guest on any other podcast?
1: Oh, man, I got so many booked from that post. I'm on like four, five others. Um, yeah, I don't even remember all of them off the top of my head, but I'll be on all sorts of shows.
0: Awesome. That's great, man. I, you know, you're, in my opinion, one of the greatest podcasters out there, and you're real and you're genuine. And we need more people like that in the industry. Um, you know, I'm just going to go out you, and sir. say it: we we need more Reed Messerschmitts and less Joe Rogans out there. <laughs>
1: Thank you. That's very sweet of you to say.
0: Um, I mean, you gave my podcast a chance, not knowing anything about it, and I feel like we've been having a great interview thus far. Um, totally. You, you know, we've had we've been sidetracked a few times, but that's I think that has more to do with our collective personalities than anything yeah. else. Um, how is Robert Pillar, if you don't mind me asking? Is he doing well?
1: Robert's in Minneapolis. Um, we work at the same place, <laughs> uh, but we both work remotely. Okay. Um, he's he's good. He's 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 you know I, I think more upset than I am about the lack of concerts right now.
0: Oh, I believe uh, it. I'm I'm feeling his pain as well, being a a long a long term metalhead, so. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, he's good. Robert's the best. I, you know, that's another one of the great things that came out of that show is I, I had never really talked to him before. Right. We started making that thing, and I consider him a really good friend. So, um, that was in and of itself worthwhile.
0: That's great. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um. Now, the one more question for you: Did you ever get around to making that battle cardigan that uh, we joked about? <laughs> No. No. I
1: have a lot of patches that I've I've uh, accumulated.
0: We'll see. Um, you're a metalhead uh, now. That's part of the right.
1: That is. Yeah. I should. I should make the cardigan. I should. I, I think I'm going to do a metal episode of the Irrationally Exuberant and kind oh, of man. summarize.
0: That would be fantastic.
1: Everything I did and but make it kind of you know more in line with that show. Right. A little weirder.
0: We, um, could, uh, we could bring back some of those fake ad reads that you guys did as that's
1: exactly right I know some of them are good and there were a couple that we didn't get around to recording so I, um, yeah I, I would like to do that
0: that sounds great man I look forward to hearing all of that I look forward to seeking out all the podcasts that are going to feature you as a great guest I want to once again thank you for coming into the Monsters Lair um, you know you didn't know me from Adam you took a chance here you are and we had this interview so I appreciate you for that um also i would like to extend the invitation to have you as a return guest in the future and maybe we'll maybe we'll cover some ufo topics down the road
1: for sure and and, i I love talking about this stuff and that was super fun so literally whatever you want
0: excellent reed i appreciate it thanks for staying up late with me thanks for coming into the monsters layer, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side sounds great thank you thank you reed In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis on May 25th, Tony Kemp, Oakland A's second baseman and former player for my hometown AAA team, the Fresno Grizzlies, was one of the most active players in the MLB to speak out against racial injustice. Unsure of how he might be received upon reuniting with teammates for summer camp, Kemp has been overwhelmed by the positive response and support from his teammates. On June 5th, a week into the nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd by police officers, Oakland A's utility man Tony Kemp posted a tweet offering to talk. If anyone wanted to have a conversation about race or learn more about systemic racism, his virtual door was open. Two weeks later, he started a movement. The plus one effect. He is embodying a quote that I personally cite often and wholeheartedly believe in. In the words of Gandhi, he hopes to be the change he wants to see in the world by holding an honest and respectful dialogue with one individual at a time, and starting a chain reaction that can change perspectives around the country. Kemp states that, quote, Change one perspective, hope they can change another, and slowly we begin to see the type of systemic change that Kemp has been waiting for for a lifetime. Kemp's The Plus One Effect, in partnership with clothing brand Breaking Tea, sees part of their proceeds go to Campaign Zero, an organization dedicated to decreasing police violence with its hashtag 8CanWait initiative. Research shows more restrictive use-of-force policies can reduce killings by police and save lives. Tell your city... To adopt all eight of these policies now. The eight policies are ban chokeholds and string holds, require de escalation, require warning before shooting, require exhaustive and to exhaust all alternatives before shooting. Duty to intervene, ban shooting at moving vehicles, require the use of force continuum to be put into place, and require comprehensive reporting by all parties involved. Another portion of proceeds from the plus one effect go to Gideon's army a group focused on dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline and interrupting the transmission of violence. In the United States, the school-to-prison pipeline, also known as the school-to-prison link, or the schoolhouse-to-jailhouse track, is the disproportionate tendency of minors and young adults from disadvantaged backgrounds to become incarcerated because of increasingly harsh school and municipal policies. Exclusionary disciplinary policies, specifically zero tolerance policies that remove students from the school environment, increase the probability of a youth coming into contact with the incarceration system. Risky problem behavior is something those students who were suspended will most likely engage in. Ways to break this cycle include prevention, encouraging cultural competence in teachers, and looking at rehabilitative practices such as restorative justice to keep young children in school to help them through any issues. The plus one effect t-shirts are available in three styles, a navy blue adult t-shirt, with a gold and white front and back print on a comfortable cotton poly blend crew neck, unisex sizing with a snug fit, ranging sizes small to three X. A Kelly Green adult t-shirt, gold and white front and back print on a super comfortable cotton poly blended crew neck, unisex sizing with a snug fit, sizes small to three X. And a navy blue youth t-shirt with golden white front and back print on a comfortable cotton poly blend crew neck. The shirts are designed by Nick Torres and screened in the USA. Go to wwwbreakingtcom slash products one effect and order your very own the plus one effect shirt today and support productive and respectful discourse on the current race relations in our country while directly helping out great organizations focused on racial equality. Also, if you'd ever like to have a productive discourse on race relations, we are available to talk at any time. Thank you.
4: here at the Monsters Lair care greatly about the physical and mental health of all of our listeners. We believe it is important to pursue these goals on a daily basis, to live a happy and healthy life. With this goal in mind, we have partnered with Phoenix Fit and are now brand ambassadors for the brand. FNX is an excellent company based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, right here in the good old U.S. of A. FNX is committed to creating innovative supplements of the highest quality that provide focus for a productive morning, energy to thrive throughout the entire day, and performance supplements to reach new goals. Unique sleep and recovery, form- recovery formulas to support any sport, and healthy supplements to support any active lifestyle for all your years to come. The Monsters Layer are proud ambassadors of FNX Fit. Together we rise. We become greater when we rise together. As the phoenix rises from the ashes, our mission is to provide fuel for greatness to live in victory every day. With our unique position as brand ambassadors, we here at the Monster's Lair can help directly in our listeners' daily health goals by providing you, the listener, with this special promo code. This code is TMLFNX20. With it, You can save 15% off any purchase you make from fnxfit.com. Once again, that code is TMLFNX20. Go to fnxfit.com and check it out
0: now. Thank you for all of your support. Let's be clear. Liquid death is a completely unnecessary approach to bottled water. In fact, they strive to be unnecessary in everything they do. Because unnecessary things tend to be far more interesting, fun, hilarious, captivating, memorable, exciting, and cult-worthy than necessary things. For example, here's a short list. Unnecessary things. Smashing a guitar on stage and lighting it on fire jumping over 14 Greyhound buses on a vintage motorcycle and cat videos. Here's a list of some unnecessary some necessary things. Breathing, driving the speed limit, and colonoscopies. Liquid Death was started with the totally evil plan to make people laugh and get more of them to drink more water more often. How? By taking the world's healthiest beverage and making it just as unnecessarily entertaining as the unhealthy brands across energy drinks beer chips and candy most products in the health and wellness space are all marketed with aspirational fitness models and airbrush celebrities and many of us are fucking tired of it why should unhealthy products be the only brands with permission to be loud fun and weird and let's be honest almost all marketing and branding is just theater so they're going to treat our theater like a movie theater and have more fun with it as longtime creative weirdos they feel that positive healthy change doesn't have to be boring in art if you want to have a bottled water at a concert in a bar at a party in your car or anywhere, it shouldn't have to also mean drinking from a plastic bottle that isn't actually recyclable, recyclable and eventually ends up in the ocean. As they continue to bring their unnecessarily awesome and infinitely recyclable bottled water option to more people, they are equally as excited to use their healthy water brand to help fund and elevate weird art, music, and entertainment that most big corporate brands would never touch. Much like Liquid Death, this ad is completely unnecessary, as Liquid Death is not even an official sponsor of the show. With that being said, I fucking love them anyway. So much so, in fact, I sold my soul to their company in exchange for joining the Liquid Death Country Club, an exclusive members-only fan club of Liquid Death Mountain Water. In the club, you will have exclusive emails sent your way for discounts, offers, Merchandise and special events. Well worth the price of one measly human soul that, let's be honest, I really wasn't using anyway. Go check out liquiddeath.com now and check out this completely unnecessary brand and order some delicious, thirst murdering, death to plastic dealing, eco friendly, 100% recyclable mountain water fresh from the Alps today. Now also available in the sparkling water option. Go and murder your thirst, now. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. You are brave enough to dive into the depths. Come visit me in the monster's lair and make it out safely on the other side. I will now unleash your shackles, allow you to stand up, and allow you to now be free to escape the monster's lair.